So last Sunday was kind of particularly kind of coming out of that, that particular book. Um, but I've been reading a whole bunch of other books, and there's a whole pile of them down here, and I'm not going to uh, kind of mention them all to you. I'm currently reading this, where is it, this one here, um, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Um, for those of you who have read The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, uh, he refers to this guy quite a lot in that book, so hence I got it. Um, and uh, as I've reflected on a lot of the books I've read, although there have been kind of lots of different subjects and lots of different themes, um, there's actually been a theme that's kind of run through it, and that's the theme of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So we're going to be digging into that theme over the coming months, years, because actually as a, as a, as a leadership and as a church and as, as ministers, we believe passionately that our task, our job, our, our position as a, as in that role is to make disciples. Jesus says, go and make disciples. He didn't say go and add numbers into the church. He didn't say go and make converts. He said go and make disciples. And that's our task. What does it mean for us to create and make and help us to grow as disciples of Jesus? So I've been reflecting a little bit on that, but equally, that's something that you've been learning about, isn't it? Because only a few weeks ago, one of your number shared something specifically about this subject. I know, because I've listened to it. So I know it happened only a few weeks ago, on the 15th of October. Um, and on that 15th of October, it was uh, a Sunday when Catchin's friend was supposed to come, and it didn't happen, and so there was a multi-voice thing happened. Remember? It's all coming back to you now. Okay, good. Justin said this on his video, and I quote, his life, this is talking about his unsung hero, Joseph of Arimathea, this is what Justin said, his life and his actions were shaped completely by his love for Jesus. That's the essence, that's the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And over these next two Sundays, today and next week, we're going to dig a little bit into that in the context of some of the other things that I've been thinking about and reading about. And I'm going to be addressing some issues like time, <laughs> uh, giving, leadership, evangelism, and uh, how we look at our whole lives, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, as a whole. And so we're going to do a little bit of reflecting on some of those themes in the context of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to be those whose everything is completely shaped by our love for him. So we're going to open by going to this passage in Matthew 22. Because everything that's going to come in the next two weeks comes out of this passage. Hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is Matthew 22, 34 verses to 40. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's the greatest commandment. The greatest one, loving God, loving people. Now we know that's on our strap line. 
as a church. We, we kind of put it out there. This is who we are as a church. It describes what we seek to be. It describes who we are and what we are hope to be. It describes who we believe God is. It sums up the law, loving God, loving people. But as we reminded last Sunday, God wants to prepare a table for us. He wants to share intimacy with us. He wants to spend time with us because he loves us that much. This loving God is not just someone that's, that we kind of give lip service to. It's not something we just have to do. It's someone we can actually relate to and, and live with and have a relationship with. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he met an apostle, Peter, and he brought healing and wholeness to this guy who had failed him. He was despondent, he felt a failure, he felt he's worthless, he felt he's useless, he'd blown it, and God met him and he, and, he, and he healed him, he restored him. And he did it by asking this question, do you love me? Three times he said to Peter, do you love me? And that's the question I want to ask myself. I want to ask us, do we love him? If we do, then everything else will flow out of that love that we have for him. So let's think about, firstly, our time and the place of Sabbath. Um, growing up, Sundays were a day that you went to church three times. <laughs> and when you came home from church... You sat on your chair and you perhaps read a book or you did a jigsaw puzzle. You certainly didn't watch the TV. You certainly didn't play any games. You didn't, certainly didn't kind of hang out with your mates. We might have gone out for a walk in the afternoon, but it was pretty much that was how it was. And I can remember those days very well. And some of you can, I'm sure, too. It's not like it is today. You certainly didn't go out for lunch on a Sunday. You didn't go to the shops because the shops weren't open. We didn't go to the petrol station to fill up your car because you'd forgotten to do it. All of that stuff, you didn't do the ironing, you didn't do the gardening. Literally, that didn't happen. It was literally church and sitting at home, gazing at your neighbours, pretty much. Um, and some of you would have had that experience. And that was my Sabbath. That's what I was taught. It was my Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day that was set aside in the Old Testament by the Jews, by God to say, remember the Sabbath, the day that rests. Um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, that understanding of what the, what the Sabbath means has been lost. So I read uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, because obviously this is a good book to read, and everyone recommends it, and it's great. Uh, left me loads of questions. Uh, so I kind of read that, dig, dug into this one called Spiritual Rhythm. Again, loads of questions, so I got into this one. The Rest of God, uh, which is restoring your soul of rest, as rest, uh, Restoring your soul by restoring Sabbath. Loads of questions about all of this stuff. What does it mean for, for me as a minister, as a pastor, to have a Sabbath? Because when you read John Mark Homer, he says, you know, there's certain things you should, your Sabbath should be about. If Sabbath is about going to church, well, that's, that's a Sunday. But then that's a work day. So how does that work? Okay, if I, if I have a Wednesday as my Sabbath, which is my day off... John Mark Homer says, don't use your Sabbath to catch up on all the jobs that you haven't done all week. Well, that's what I do on a Wednesday. <laughs> so how do, how do I as a pastor 
figure this stuff out? I don't have the answers to that question yet. I'm still working it through. I'm still trying to figure it out. Still trying to make sense of what it means, what it means for me to have a Sabbath. What does my Sabbath look like? Uh, and I want to kind of encourage you to think through the same stuff. But we're going to reflect a little bit on what Sabbath means and what it is. This is the passage from Mark chapter 2. And it starts at the end of chapter 2 and it goes on into the start of chapter 3. Two passages, two stories, back to back, talking about Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. So from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples were walked along him, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Sabbath is about centering ourselves upon God. It's about coming back into that place where we can enjoy God. That, that idea of the table is about where we can sit at the table and fellowship with God. And yes, it should be 24-7, 365 days of the year. But Sabbath gives us an opportunity to reset, to reconnect, to refocus. It's about silence and solitude. It's about eating and celebrating. It's about being who God created us to be in the world God created us to inhabit. But the challenge with Sabbath for many of us, is that it can become just about the one day. It can all become about the day. And restoring Sabbath is about what happens seven days a week, not just one day a week. It's about a reordering of our lives in order that we have that opportunity to have that time, to be able to focus on our relationship with him. And if we don't plan ahead, and if we don't prepare for the Sabbath, it becomes full of other stuff that gets in the way. Now, I'm sure that many of you go shopping, and you do your weekly grocery shops. I suspect that not many of you just get in the car, drive to the shops, and get out of the car, walk into the shops, and then try and figure out what you're going to buy. I suspect most of you have a plan, have a shopping list. You might even have done a weekly food plan and a menu for the week. And so you know what meals you're going to have each day. And so you know what you need to get because that's what is happening. 
So you prepare yourself to get to the shop to buy what you need. Yeah? Am I, am I on the mark there? If something like my wife, that's probably what you do. See, when we put things in our diaries, when we make those choices, we also need to factor in time to prepare for it. So for me, if I have a governor's meeting, I can't just roll up at six o'clock for a governor's meeting. I've got a shed load of paperwork to read before the governor's meeting. And as chair, I need to kind of read, make sure I'm reading that so I know what I'm talking about in chairing the meetings. If I have a funeral, I don't just rock up at the, at the crematorium without any preparation. I have a, to block out time to sit down and prepare the funeral, prepare what I'm going to say. I don't just turn up on a Sunday morning and just stand here and go, what am I going to say today? Some weeks, probably you think I do. Um, but I have to take time to prepare, to write, to, to put it all together. And Sabbath should be like that for all of us. Shouldn't be something that, so we suddenly wake up on a, on, a, on a Sabbath day, whatever our Sabbath day looks like, and go, oh, it's my Sabbath. What am I going to do today? The point of Sabbath is it reorders how we spend our whole time, how we spend our seven days. It's to rest with God, to enjoy God, to enjoy communion with God, to allow God to reset our minds and hearts and soul and strength, it's to, to have that moment where we can fall back in love with him. So, do you have a Sabbath? And if so, what does it look like? How is that influencing the way you spend your time? And as I said earlier, I'm still wrestling with it. I have no answers for me at this stage. I'm still kind of talking to others that are in the same kind of work that I do and kind of go, how, how do we figure this stuff out? Is the Sunday my Sabbath? Because if it's about turning up at church, then I can only do it on a Sunday, not on a Wednesday. Unless you want me to open up a church on a Sunday on a Wednesday, then that's work as well. So it doesn't work. So how do we make this, how do we make this thing up? So I don't know. If you've got any wisdom, answer on a postcard or an email. Be gentle. Uh, if you've read any books that are really helpful, let me have them. I'd love to know more because I kind of need to know. I need to know, for me, what Sabbath looks like. But what does Sabbath look like for you? Do you have that time in your week? where you give it to God, where it's time for him. And there might be some silence and some solitude. It might be that, but it might be just eating and celebrating with family and friends. It might be doing the things that, that you were created to do and love, that bring life and remind you that God loves you. But how do we use that time? The question for us is, do you love me? Because if we love God, surely we want to spend time with him. If we love God, surely that will affect how we use our time. And we will prioritise time with him. We will prioritise shaping our week in order to have that time with him. Sabbath isn't something that was made... <laughs> you know, we were, man wasn't made for Sabbath, it was the other way around. You know, it was given to us as a gift to help us to reshape and reset so how do we use our time? How are you using your time? How do we allow that time, that, the impact and the desire to have that space to affect the rest of the week? You know, the danger is, 
if, for example, Sunday's your Sabbath, then Monday morning we just, and Mondays, we just kind of coast through Mondays and we don't do some things on Mondays because we're just, just chilling out. And then by the time we get to Friday, we've got a shed load of stuff to do because we haven't allowed ourselves to affect the week. How do we use Sabbath? How do we spend our time? But the question is, do you love me? Do you love me? So the second topic I want to talk about this morning is the topic of giving. Alongside all these books I've been reading, I've been going through some other some devotional stuff, and one of the books I've been reading and using is uh, it's called The Way of Wisdom by uh, Philip, uh, Tim Keller, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller. Um, it's, a, it's a devotional that's written every day of the week uh, for the year, uh, rooted in Proverbs. And just these last few weeks, there's been a whole section on, on money and giving and tithing and, and how we use our finances and possessions. And when, we come, when it comes to money, the same problem can happen that happens with our Sabbath and our time. That, in effect, we give God what's left. And that isn't the biblical principle of what we do with our money. Can I just say, right at the front end of this, don't think I enjoy talking about this subject. <laughs> this subject is quite a difficult subject to talk about for me, and you'll hopefully understand why when, we, when I unpack it for you. But the question is, if we don't consciously make choices and decisions about our giving, either it doesn't happen at all, or God gets what's left. And that is often the sort of the shrapnel in our pockets at the end of the week or the end of the month. And just like with the Sabbath principle of prioritising, when we prioritise our giving to God, that affects everything else. And we align the rest of our spending in line with what we give to God. When we, we recognise the desire to give God the time and the Sabbath, that reorganises and re restructures our week. So the same is true with our giving. So what are the biblical principles around giving? The Old Testament talks about a tithe, which is an old English word meaning a tenth. The Israelites were to bring the first tenth of their harvest and livestock. And it was given to the Levites. The Levites are one of the tribes of Israel. But they were set apart by God to be the priests and to be those who served in the temple. That enabled the rest of the nation to worship. And because that was what they were, their role was, they were set apart for that, they didn't have land to farm, and they didn't have the time to farm it. And so they were reliant on the rest of the people to provide for them in order to release them to do what God had wanted them to do, which was to prepare the worship place and to enable his people to worship. There's a principle there of giving the, the money to the church in order to release people to do what God asked them to do. Now, actually, if you, if you kind of want to be very pedantic about these sorts of things, there are actually three tithes in the Old Testament that the people were meant to bring. Two will happen every year, and one happened every three years. So if you do your numbers and your maths and your averages out, that works at about 20% of your income every year. So um, that's, that's the Old Testament, and some people kind of get into that and get very het up over that kind of stuff. That's not what we're going to be doing and not what we're about. But if you want to go back and dig a little bit more on, on this stuff... Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, and even in the Hebrews 7, uh, the Hebrew, Hebrew writer um, references back to 
Abraham tithing and giving to Melchizedek in, Matthew, in Hebrews 7. Those references are to this tenth, this giving, giving God a tenth. Through the prophet Malachi, God points out to the Israelites that they are not giving their full tithes. And that isn't denying the Levites, although it is. What God says to, through the prophet Malachi is that they are denying God. They're not giving to God what is rightfully his. And also, more than that, he brings a rebuke because it, in not giving their tithe, not giving their 10% to God, they're actually denying and they're not trusting God. So it's not just about we're not doing it. It's, a, it's, it's actually saying to God, I don't trust you, God. This is what they say. This is what Malachi says. Bring the whole tithe. This is what God's speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, bring the whole tithe into the warehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So by not bringing their tithe, they're denying God that they have trust in him to actually provide what they need. And that's the challenge of giving. If we don't give to God, actually what it says to God is, I don't trust you to be able to provide for my needs. Now, if you go to the New Testament, and if you've got a, 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 an app on your, on your phone, you can put tithe into, your, into your, um, your search engine in your phone for your Bible apps, and tithe won't be mentioned at all. You won't see it. It doesn't come up. Tenth does, but tithe doesn't. Um, interestingly. And actually the principle is because there isn't that sense of tithe in the New Testament. That's, that's a different principle in the New Testament. There is one reference to a tenth, and this is when God, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, and he says this to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. The, the, uh, the Pharisees were so pedantic over the tithe that they even tithed their, their, uh, their herbs and their spices. You know, one tenth of every seed that they had, you know, literally, they were that pedantic over it. And Jesus calls them out and says, But you've forgotten the important things of, of justice and mercy and faithfulness. But what does Jesus say? He says, you should have done that latter stuff while still doing the former stuff. He doesn't say, don't tithe. He says, do those other things. Those other things are important, but still tithe. If you go to Acts chapter 4, you find a different mentality and a different priority. In the New Testament, it's all about faithful giving, cheerful giving, generous giving. And if you go to Acts chapter 4, what you find is that there was need in the community. This is before social services and before social welfare and all the rest of it. And so the community looked after each other. And so those in, in that time, some people who had land and possessions and houses, they sold it. And the money they got, they brought it to the disciples and said, that this is for the community. That's the principle of the New Testament, generous giving. And it wasn't just within the church community. So in Acts chapter 4, it's very much about the, the, the immediate community. But if you go on in Acts further on, you find that uh, the people in Jerusalem were giving money to other places, and other places were giving money to Jerusalem when there was famine. 
They looked out for one another within the community. It happened church to church, community to community. If you go into the, to Corinth, the second letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, Paul urges their believers there to decide what they're going to give and to give it generously and cheerfully. He says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should decide, uh, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not because the church leader told you to do it, but God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So as I kind of try and put the old and the new together, nowhere in the new does Jesus say the old is out of date and it's gone. But the New Testament principle of generously giving, what we decide in our hearts to give, it seems to me that the principle is we decide in our hearts what we're going to give. And we give it cheerfully and we give it with gratitude in our hearts to him. Now, as a church, we don't say you should give a tenth. We don't do that. We say that's a good guide. It's a good starting point. As a church community, as our budgets, we will give a tenth. So if you look at our budgets, which we're going to be looking at next Sunday, we tithe all of our income. 10% we give it away. Now, again, cash flow means that sometimes that's difficult to do. But in, in our budget, that's our, that's our principle. But it isn't about the amount that you give. We don't, as a church, set a subscription fee to become a member of our church. So we don't all pay the same amount of money. We give according to our needs. And if you talk, look at the story of Jesus, when he, he was talking about, he sort of observed this lady, this little widow coming up and throwing her two little coins in the, in the bowl, followed by this religious leader who came and threw a wad of notes into the bowl. Jesus said to his disciples, the little lady gave more than the, the other guy because she gave out of her need and out of a little, rather than out of what the wealth, wealth that the other guy had. And he says it's about the heart, the cheerful giver, not reluctantly, not through gritted teeth. That's not the biblical principle of giving. As I say, it's, it's not an easy subject for me to preach on because of the nature of my role here. But I do believe it's a, a, a message that I believe God has asked me to bring to us for us to reflect on. Don't think that I stand up here as someone that has it sorted. I struggle with this. Now, our priorities in giving should be to give to the church first. As members of a church, we should give to the church first. By all means, give to others and support other organisations, other people that you want to, that's fine. But the first priority on our giving should be to the church. Go back to the Old Testament, go back to the New Testament, that's the principle, supporting the church. I'm only here because the church gives, people in the church give to enable me to be here and do what I do. That's the principle. The Levites were set apart to serve the people. We've been set apart, I've been set apart to lead and to help guide. And we need the church community to do that together. Now that's on me as well as on you. It's not... I'm not saying I'm, I'm above you, I'm, I'm in that mix with you as well. And it's not a subject, as I said, I enjoy preaching about, and I do find it difficult. 
But I think it's one we need to hear, hear and listen. I heard over the years, I remember preaching on this once in another church. And uh, it's one of those churches where um, at the end of the ser- service, you know, the preacher would go and stand at the door. So I kind of finished the service and I went to the door. And as I was walking back to the, to the door, someone in the pew said to me, I can't afford it. <laughs> oh, okay. I've heard that before. I can't afford to give. What can you afford not to give? It's not about whether we can afford it or not. Now, I don't make any apologies for showing this video again. Some of you have seen this video over and over again. Some of you know what's coming now. This is J. John, classic on giving. Who's, who's seen this one before? Some of you have seen this one before. So I don't make any apologies for showing it again because he says it in a way which is far better than what I can do. But this is about J. John and us tithing our donuts. One of my favourite stories is the story of the man who's at an airport and he wants to buy a coffee and a bag of very small donuts. Gets his coffee, gets his donuts. He's looking for somewhere to sit, but all the tables are all taken. So he goes to one table where there's a man sitting and he goes to the opposite chair. He puts his bag down. He puts his coffee down. He gets his coat off. He puts it around the chair. He sits in the chair. Ah. Gets the coffee, has a little sip, great. Picks up the bag of donuts, opens it, takes out a donut, starts eating the donut, puts the, the bag down. The man opposite stretches over, picks up the bag of donuts, takes out a donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down, smiles. The other man cannot believe what he has just seen. I mean, what is the world coming to? He is so shocked by this, he he just doesn't know what to say. So he gives him one of these looks, if looks could kill. Picks up the bag of donuts, takes out another donut, moves it to the edge of the table, turns sideways, starts reading his magazine. Body language resistance. The man opposite stretches over... Picks up the bag of donuts, takes out another donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down, smiles again. The other guy thinks, he's obviously not quite there, you know, he's a banana short of a fruit bowl. But he thinks, I'd better not say anything, you know, just in case the guy's a bit violent. You don't know, do you? So he kind of bites his lip. Anyway, the man gets up to leave, so the other man thinks it's about time you left, you donut thief. He looked at his watch. Oh, it's time for me to go. He got up. He put his jacket on. He bent down to pick up his bag. And sitting on top of his bag was his bag of donuts. (laughs) The man is complaining that the other man was stealing his donuts when the truth was the other man was sharing his donut. Listen to me, God owns all the donuts. God owns all the donuts. Right? Every week, you and I, we get given a bag of donuts. Okay? In the bag are 10 donuts. 
The value of the bag of donuts will vary from person to person, but we'll all be getting 10 donuts. Okay, now these are 10 secular donuts. God says, I want you to take one of your secular donuts and I want you to con- give it to me. Give it to me and give it to the, the, the church community that you belong to. And yet, what happens? Most people, what do you mean? I've got 10 donuts. He wants me to give one away. Why, why would I give one away when I need 11? See, they don't understand the principle. The, look, I told you they were secular donuts. You see, when you take one of the secular donuts and you say, God, I'm giving this to you and the church community that I belong to, when you do that, that secular donut becomes sacred. The moment that that donut becomes sacred, the nine secular donuts become sacred donuts. Nine sacred donuts are worth more than ten secular ones. I make no apologies for showing that again. God owns all the donuts. We all get ten. What are we going to do with them? The question with giving, as the question with time, do you love me? See, our giving comes out of our relationship to God. I don't want anybody to give under compulsion. I don't want anybody to feel they have to give. But when we love God, we want to give. When we love God, we want to give him our time and create time for him. When we love God, we want to give him what he has first given to us. And that one donut, or whatever you decide in your heart to give. But the question is, not are you giving, how much are you giving, not how are you spending your time. The question is, do you love me? That's the question. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Everything, as Justin said, our actions, everything that we do is motivated by and shaped by the fact that we love him. That's our money, that's our time. And next week we'll pick up the other themes as well in this same context. Do you love me. Let's pray.